I'm Kara Infante, and this is Bookish Flights. In each episode, I chat with one bookish guest as we take some time to sample and savor the pairing recommendations from their bookish flight. We hope to give you suggestions to cultivate your TBR list and nurture your leisure time through books. In today's episode, I am chatting with Janet Hurley. Janet was born and raised in the Hudson Valley of upstate New York before coming south to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for its undergraduate creative writing program. Though it took a while to replace you guys with y'all, she has lived in the south ever since, most recently in the Blue Ridge Mountains of western North Carolina, where she and her husband David raised their son and daughter. After receiving an MFA in creative nonfiction from Lesley University, in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2008, Janet published feature stories and profiles for North Carolina-based magazines Our State and Verve. She also ran a small business, True Inc., which provided creative opportunities for young writers. In 2011, she co-founded Asheville Writers in the Schools and Community, a nonprofit committed to racial equity and social change through the power of arts, culture, and restorative self-expression. And from 2013 to 2016, she taught creative nonfiction and writing for the media as an adjunct in the undergraduate writing program at Warren Wilson College. The onset of the COVID-19 pandemic forced many transitions, including fortunately a refocus on her own writing. Glove Shy, A Sister's Reckoning is Janet's first book length publication. She lives in Asheville, North Carolina with David and their dog Wilson. Welcome to the show, Janet. Well, thanks so much for having me, Kara. I'm so glad we could do this this morning. Why don't you start by telling me a little bit about who you are? Well, um, I'm a writer. And um, at this point in my life, I'm, I'm still working. I'm 61. Okay. Uh, still working, and I work as a grant writer for a wonderful organiz- community organization um, called Collaborativa La Milpa, and okay. um, they uh, do a lot of great uh, community work in uh, a Latinx community here in Asheville, North Carolina, and um, and so I do grant writing during you know for. 20 hours a week, which is great. And then I have time to be doing, to read and yes. just some other <laughs> writing and other creative ventures. Yeah. And I imagine that grant writing is very different from the writing that you're doing, your creative writing. So you're getting to use, you know, a different part of your brain as you then step into the role of creative writing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there are some um, parallels that with grant writing in that um, drafting and then curating, right? Curating language because uh, depending on the funder, uh, which could be a county government or it could be um, you know, an individual family foundation, a private foundation. Um, and it, so knowing your audience, sure. being able to curate the language, you know, finding language that feels true to what the experiences of these organizations and yet is accessible to that funder. So there's a lot of parallels with um, creative nonfiction or any sort of creative writing that knowing your audience and, um, and then you just draft so much with my own process. I drafted so much and then having to curate, put the pieces together. So it's, it's similar. And then you're right. You know, it also involves budgets, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) putting down objectives, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, um, would not consider myself a writer, but I'm imagining, right. It's kind of a business mindset versus a creative mindset, maybe that you're stepping into, but like you said, the nonfiction piece too, that could be a really good, you know, translate between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm so inspired by the work and the people. So I do it with a lot of love and that feels really good. I'm not, 
you know, writing grants for a huge nonprofit organization that sure. I don't feel super connected to. Yeah, so. I bet that's really important. Is that, um, I'm imagining, is that's a Spanish, uh, the title of the company? Mm-hmm. Collaborative okay. La Milpa. It's a, so it's a group of organizations um, that are, it's, every organization is led by folks who identify as Latinx and okay. often as immigrant. And so they have been doing lots of organizing for many years. And they were like, you know, it would be super helpful if we could share resources and infrastructure, yeah. that kind of thing. And, um, so, yeah. That's so, great. I um, love that. Yeah. Uh, do you I speak do. Spanish then? You know, um, I speak enough Spanish right now. I've I've spoke I've been a student of Spanish since I was actually in middle school. Wow. And um so I read, write, understand my verbal fluency as I'm working on it. Yes, I, <laughs> so, I feel that. My uh my husband's family is Cuban. And oh, wow. so we, and they're very gracious, you know, when we're around or I'm around, they'll speak, they speak English, you know, but I think like what you're saying, when I'm reading it on the, the paper or I have more time to write it, my brain has more time to process where if I'm verbally in a conversation, it's, it's much faster. And so I am still working on that myself. <laughs> yeah, I think it, um, I tend to work from home, but, you know, I'll go out for meetings or, um, you know, just go out for events. They do a lot of community events and, you know, it, it takes just being immersed. And um, so I have a thought about my daughter went for a semester to Guatemala and did language immersion there. And, um, and she had never actually studied any Spanish, but came wow. back very able to carry on you know, more than just where's the bathroom kind of conversation. Sure. <laughs> right? And so I think about doing that. I am, um, I do constantly, I'm doing conversation classes, but I'm also going to start working with a native speaker from Mexico who, you know, he is in Mexico. So, yeah. um, so anyway, yeah. And I love that, you know, it's language. I love language. I'm not like super adept at like, I'm not one of those people who's going to be speaking four languages, like English, Spanish. Those are the. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We also, we had the opportunity to live in Sicily for a few years and oh, I wow. found that so impressive because people in Europe, they can speak. It's not just two languages. It's usually three, four. I'm like, this is so impressive. It's a yeah. skill that I wish I had. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And just it, you know, the cultural aspects of language are just so intriguing. Yeah. 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 Well, let's go back through language a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about who you are as a writer. I started this, I'd always written poetry and uh, short stories. And um, I did think in the 90s, I don't know, at the same time I was uh, having my babies, uh, somehow I thought I could also birth a novel. And so <laughs> I did do a lot of writing on a novel that, like many writers, you know, there's a box of that from the 90s. Of sure. <laughs> Um, so it's all hard copy and, you know, who knows? I don't think I'll ever return to that particular thing, but it was a good learning experience. And so I came to Asheville, my family moved to Asheville in 2001. And in okay. 2003, I saw just a notice about a class being offered, um, in creative nonfiction. And in the early 2000s, that idea of creative nonfiction was, somewhat new, at least to me and a lot of the folks that I knew in writing communities or, you know, even as readers. And so I have been reading some, some things like Sebastian Younger, um, you know, The Perfect yeah. Storm, um, mm -hmm. and then not to 
follow that theme too much, but then Isaac Storm by Eric Larson, which was about a huge hurricane that hit Galveston. Okay. And uh, that, you know, the weather forecasts in the state said, oh, it'll never hit. And of course it did. Mm -hmm. um, but what I was so struck about, uh, struck by in those um, books was, you know, there was sort of this uh, certainly attention to fact and there was that journalism approach of sure. being accurate, but there was such strong character and narrative development. And so it felt so, it felt like you were entering into little worlds that you really didn't know about, like didn't know about, you know, fishing crews or sure. the small town, didn't know about, you know, anything about weather forecasting and the different approaches. In fact, one of yeah. the things in there is about Cuba and okay. it, it's much more accurate weather forecasting mm -hmm. and they did predict the hurricane. And wow. so, um, and, and a lot of, anyway, I'll let you, you could read it and you could yeah. find it. Okay. <laughs> um, so I took this class just like on a lark and I thought, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write, I'm going to find like small worlds, not small in import, but things that I could go into that were exciting for me to explore and um, got in there and started writing these pieces about my brother okay. um, who by that time <clears throat> Uh, he had died about 13 years earlier okay and um he had been an amateur fighter and trained he was the protege of a world heavyweight champion Floyd Patterson um okay. Floyd Patterson was in that realm he was late 50s early 60s and then Sonny Liston Muhammad Ali wow. and he lived in the 70s well he lived for most of uh gosh, my growing up in New Paltz, New York and in, in the Hudson Valley, he, okay. he lived there and he had opened up a gym where he invited young, at that time, young men to come and sure. train. And my brother was one of those. And it was just a huge, um, huge part of my life. He was four years older. I'd followed him everywhere. Yeah. Um, he, you know, I would always say I adored him. He let me. <laughs> he yeah. And I, I was 11, 10, 11 when he first got into this. And I just became obsessed with boxing with this. He had, my brother was getting written about in newspapers. He was quoted in people magazine. He was, wow. you know, like there was just this celebrity around Floyd. Okay. And that encompassed my brother and from my 10 year old brain, you know, and my family. And um, I, you know, I read Ring Magazine as a 10 year old. <laughs> I just got into it. Yeah. So, but I started writing these pieces about that. And then um, the instructor at the time, who's now a good friend of mine, Sebastian, um, you know, he, I, he just really gave me great feedback and kind of invited me into a conversation about, is this something that you would want to do in a, you know, in a more robust way, like enter into like a memoir. And yeah. um, so there I went un unknowing, <laughs> <laughs> very naive. Um, yeah. yeah. So when was that? What year was that when you decided to do that? So that was 2003. And so I worked, you know, I had, my children were still small sure. so, and I was working. Um, and so I wrote pieces. I had a strong writer's group, okay. um, which I'd always been in a writer's group of some, some shape or form wherever I was. Um, and so that, you know, I, I wrote pieces and then, um, I applied for a fellowship uh, to the Vermont Studio Center, which is 
um, on the, almost at the border with Canada. Okay. And I went there for a month wow. and to work on this memoir and went to, I went to go back to school and did an MFA and worked on the memoir. <laughs> and then when I came back out and I started uh, True Inc., which was, um, you know, just a response to seeing my children in in school get to a point where they loved writing stories, you know, they yeah. loved it, um, or verbally telling the stories. And then they get to third and fourth grade. And suddenly in North Carolina, at that time, there was the fourth grade writing test. And there was just suddenly this like shutdown of the joy of writing. And so I started offering summer camps and doing after school programs just to engage children and the joy of writing and sort of the habits yeah. of a good writer, that kind of thing. I thought about that a lot with my children is I feel like they are so creative still at this age. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've thought mm -hmm. I pondered in my mind of, well, how do I keep that creativity going? Right. Cause mm -hmm. I feel like there's this certain point they reach. And like you said, it's kind of, we'll fit in this box and do this thing. And then we lose that a little mm -hmm. bit. Unless you really try to cultivate it, which it sounds like you have most of your life. You've been a writer, so you've tried to cultivate this creative part of your brain. But um, I've thought a lot about that. So I think that's very beautiful, your True Inc. organization. Do you still do that? You know, I don't uh, do that. I don't do summer camps or after-school programs or anything like that. But I do take private students. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you never know. I might at some point do a you know, a small group here, you know, for a long, for a couple of years, there was a small group of uh, middle school girls that met okay. at my house. And, um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm not, not teaching. At okay. This. Facilitating That's is really more of what I did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Providing opportunities and for children and youth. I mean, I, yeah. at one point I was working with um, the homeschool community here in Asheville and sometimes the kids were as young as first grade and then I was also teaching a class for retirees and memoir writing so I had this range wow <laughs> of, and it was so fun yeah and there were times when I was like hmm, not so different yeah <laughs> very young just in terms of building confidence and yeah exploring language so I think for a lot of uh a lot of kids too you know the doing a summer camp or everything you know for younger children through even you know the end of middle school is very social there's like a real yeah. sociability so even though we would have what I called psychic space for them to sit down and actually write. We did very experiential um, activities. You know, we would go on noticing walks. We would eavesdrop, which kids love. They <laughs> loved going down for a walk down the main street here in Asheville and eavesdropping on conversations because they're yeah. not supposed to, right? And um, we would go to places where they would be just, they they were looking for juxtapositions, you know, wow. and, and even a kid who's like in third grade gets the idea of juxtaposition. Like remember one time a kid found there was a high heel next to a dumpster and the okay. high heel was in good shape. It was very pretty. Yeah. And just writing like, Whoa, you know, that that's so cool. And, you know, so I think, I think there are moments for parents and educators always to be just those small moments that can yeah. be lifted up and engaged. That's part of creative process. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, just more be a facilitator, I guess. I think that's a good, you know, watching for that and helping facilitate that. Yeah. 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 Just sharing in the wonder or sharing in the like, oh my gosh, that is really strange. Let's look yeah. at that you know um so and I love that I really enjoyed doing that um that led to 
to uh, co-founding the nonprofit Asheville Writers in the Schools and Community. And at that point, I was still freelance writing, um, but just, I can say, co-founding a nonprofit um, with that was very community focused. Um, yeah, so I didn't write very much. Yeah, it sounds like I imagine, right, if this is my motherhood life of trying to fit things in the cracks of my day, and it sounds like you've always been very busy. So I imagine that's what you've done through your life is trying to fit this in where you can. Yes, absolutely. And um, when I, I taught at Warren Wilson College, and I loved it. Um, but it's a I think it's a you know, talking with other writers, it's it's definitely the devil's bargain. Like you need to make money. Yeah. And I love working with young people and um and yet then you come home after discussing or wonderful creative nonfiction and then you come home and you're reading their creative nonfiction and then like trying to bring that energy and they're you know some people who do that really well yeah it's, it's not my strength I get you know I would get very sort of uh creativity fatigued or something sure. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. And that's a side of writing. Now that I've done this a little bit more and talked to other authors, I never I never thought about, right? They're like, well, yeah, I don't even sometimes I can't even pick up a book because I've been so immersed in words all day long. Mm -hmm. And they're like, it's hard to then go read a leisure book to unwind because I've been writing all day. And I'm like, gosh, I never thought about how that would take away from your reading life. <laughs> yeah. Potentially. And yeah. And it's interesting because I just think that as a writer, you have to be a reader. You yeah, have yeah. to be a dedicated reader. And, um, yeah, I was lucky when I was doing my MFA. I, you know, we read constantly. We worked with our advisors to, to create a, a list of sure. books that we thought we wanted to read. And then we're given books that wow. they thought we should yeah. be <laughs> And, and then we were, you know, writing about those books. And um, I, I just, I think it's so important. So. Yeah. Well, this is a great segue, I think, to talk a little bit about who you are as a reader. What type of books and genres do you enjoy to read? If anybody recommends a book and I really, you know, know that person and respect them and all that, I would read anything, you know, even if even if it would be like, really, the zombie thing? I'm not sure I want to <laughs> a zombie apocalypse person. Yeah. But, um, but generally, I am drawn to memoirs. I am drawn to um, historical fiction, which okay. um, my flight today involves historical fiction. Yeah, that's my and favorite. Really? <laughs> I'll do my little dance here. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, but like I said, I I read a lot of novels. Um, gosh, I don't read a lot of poetry. Okay. Um, I also love really. Uh, good collections of personal essays. Okay. I'm a big fan of essay writing. Um, there's, um, you know, personal essays. Also, no, there's some that are known more as familial essays, which uh, just are, um, yeah, just so much more personal, more about immediate surroundings. And sure. um, so anyway, I love essays. Yeah. And then in your busyness, how do you find time to read? Oh, well, you know, I read at night. I mean, my okay. grant writing, writing and, and the other things that I do. Um, I'm, I'm definitely a person that I read. Well, I read first thing in the morning when I get up. Um, okay. I've always been an eat a meal and read person, Love um, it. <laughs> not dinner, but, uh, you know, 
but like lunch or breakfast, I'll be reading while I eat. Mm -hmm. um, and then usually in the evening before I go to bed, I'll read about an hour, an hour and a half. Okay. Let's go out. You've so graciously provided us a book flight today. And why don't you tell us a little bit about how the books pair together? Okay. So my book flight, I have three historical novels and they are, um, the way that they go together, they're from three, they involve three different countries. Um, Love it. the first one is New Zealand and it's two by Patricia Grace. Okay. Um, the second one is called The Glass Palace and that's by Amitav Gosh. And the third one is Pachinko, which is Min Jin Lee. Um, the Glass Palace uh, is set in Burma, what was then known as Burma and sure. India. Okay. Um, and Pachinko is set in Korea and Japan. Okay. So um, what ties them together for me is that they, they're all written by folks who are either native of these places, yeah. um, who two of them, Patricia Grace and Amitav Gosh, actually grew up in these countries. Okay. Um, Min Jin Lee uh, is of Korean descent. And um, I think she, everything I've read about her, you know, she lives in New York City and I'm pretty sure that she's Korean American. Um, they all concern uh, the impact of colonialism. Okay. And they all provide these really amazing narrative opportunities for readers to understand the impact of colonialism and to learn about histories that are not lifted to the surface very much. Mm -hmm. um, so I can go into each one a little bit more. I would love that, please do. <laughs> So Patricia Grace is a Maori writer um, okay. from New Zealand. She was the first Maori woman to have a collection of short stories published. Wow. Okay. Um, and she's written, you know, she there, she has a lot of, a lot of books and short stories on her resume. So two is the story of three um maori young men who uh who were part of historically they were part of the maori battalion okay that went to fight during world war ii in wow. italy okay and um so the main protagonist his uh he well the protagonist and the um he's an old man when you first meet him and he's telling the stories to his nieces and nephews and that's okay. two and okay. two was a maori warrior god and so it goes through just uh first of all this sense um in new zealand um because new zealand as a you know, under the colonialism of Britain, mm -hmm. uh, there, it was just very interesting to me that, you know, for the Maori community, there, that idea of like supporting the, there was sort of the older guard in the Maori community that they were, you know, so much about survival under a colonialist rule. Yeah. And that belief that, you know, you needed to go and serve in this battalion. And um, and then there were, you know, the Maori uh, younger folks, mostly that were just saying, no, you know, we've we've lost so much. Mm -hmm. um, but in the end, these young three men, uh, one was a cousin, two brothers go 
to Italy. And there is just all that trappings of the glory of war, you know, that they're going and that they're sent off from New Zealand. And there is that part of that warrior piece, you know, they were greatly feared, right? And um, so they, they go and, you know, the truth is war is horrible, right? And um, and as is the case with the United States sending entire black battalions into war, um, there wasn't a lot of support for those. Sure. Troops. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the loss of so many of these Maori men and then coming back to New Zealand and and just having to deal with all of the impact of that. So um, it's a really beautifully written book. And um, I really admired Patricia Grace for writing, like she did so much research, but she'd also had so many stories handed down to her. Yeah. So that was where what provoked her writing. But also, you know, she's writing about she's writing through the point of view of male narrators. And she had to reconstruct those, you know, those spaces that these men were in when they were in Italy and um and fighting. Mm-hmm. And she just I, I thought she did a really great job of not relying say on sort of classic battle language or whatever the other thing is she uses so much idiom maori based idiom in the language and i really enjoyed that too even as i would have to reread oh okay you know it just really got the culture across wow that sounds like a really beautiful book and i love reading books for that reason of feeling like I'm I'm learning about, you know, events in history, but also the culture right. so much as well. I, I love when books transport me that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I love that you use that word, the transporting, um, because that when I was thinking about the books for the flight, that that's what really comes up. Like, what is it that's taken me? Yeah. In, in way. Yeah, you Just, get lost in the pages, right? And yeah. And like you're saying, right, we gain a greater appreciation for what I, I, the very little I knew of the Maori culture, right? But I, after reading this, I would know so much more, right? And it'd be a, such a deeper connection of understanding. Yeah. Just day to day, you know, and within the community, the things that they're grappling with, struggling yeah. with. Um, and yeah, yeah, I, I, I just really enjoyed it. Um, so the next book is The Glass Palace. Okay. Top Gosh. And I, it could be gauche. I probably should have listened, um, Googled it and listened to a pronunciation before I came on here. Um, so this author grew up in India, in Calcutta. Um, and he is prolific. And okay. I, I read The Glass Palace and then a good reading buddy of mine, we share books all the time and Love go on walks and unpack the books that we're reading. And um, and we would just exclaim, oh, my gosh, look, he has this <laughs> book or that book. Oh, my gosh. You know, and we yeah. read last year, we read almost everything that we could find that he had wow. written. They all tend to be very epic. Um, okay. and this one is, um, it's beautifully, beautifully written. And so, uh, it's, it starts out in what is now Myanmar and was Burma. Um, and it's, uh, there's a young protagonist, um, a boy who is Indian, but because of, you know, just from a, very impoverished family and he had taken a job on a boat that brought him to Burma at like the age of 12 and so he is there when um 
so this is again a colonial you know story about colonialism and so he is there as suddenly the world and particularly the uh, Britain discovered that teak wood was very valuable and um, so there's a lot of resistance to these British companies coming in even as um, folks from Burma were were setting up their own teak companies and um, so it follows his story the glass palace was the palace of the uh, royal family of Burma and um, that falls and um, and I think he's probably 13 or 14 he's like living on a somebody's porch basically wow and he goes into the palace and he sees this um young girl who's probably 12 and she's one of the royal maids but of course the royalty escaped and they left everybody behind to deal with everything and so he just he helps her to get out and then he becomes kind of obsessed with the idea of her and Besides, he needs to get into teak to, um, okay. to make enough money to support her. So it follows their journey. It also goes into the royal journey. They go and live in India, and um, and then there are the all of these uh, sub stories, sub lines, like cause so you see your main character, you know, and they have choice, finally gets the woman that he loves, they have children, but there's all of the impact of the economic pressures from Britain and other countries that want to come and basically, you know, they're decimating the local economies. Um, One of the things that I learned from it was that, you know, in India, there was so much status as a young Indian man to go into the military, which was really British military. Yeah. Even if it was to- all the officers were British. Um, so you couldn't actually make your way up to the top, but you could wow. be part of it. Um, but then there was the independence movement in India, um, you know, sort of that pre-Gandhi um place and one of the things i found interesting was that there was some of the folks who were involved in like saying we need to overthrow british rule here um and they went to new york and they uh what was then uh, i think called Sinn fein um or the ira there were these irish revolutionaries in New York and they talked about how because they were wanting to overthrow throw British rule yeah so, Hurley is a very Irish name okay <laughs> and so I was just so fascinated by that wow. um and so anyway it's an epic I think the thing at the very end um there's uh a young man who has totally bought into the military, the Indian military, and he goes to Burma, you know, as part of like to overthrow the revolution there as like a British soldier, a young Indian man. And he gets there and there's this whole beautiful chapter almost of suddenly his like, whoa, you know, these people look like me. They yeah. want the same things as I do. And it was just so beautifully, achingly written. I just yeah. love it. Well, it sounds like you said, like an epic, like sweeping story of all of this. And I would love the ability, you know, pick it up and learn through the pages because that is something in a world I know nothing about. Right. And yeah. I didn't either. My friend is also, um, she's, Indian American first generation and she didn't either and so she felt like 
for her, this was so important to read and to be understanding yeah. more. And she goes back to India to visit family. But again, I think just like here in the States, you know, there are just so many things that our children don't know about. Yeah. <laughs> our history for good and for horrible. Yeah. They need to learn about. So. Yeah. And I think that is life though, right? I mean, it's a lifelong journey of learning and there's, there is so much out there that it, it does take us some time to get through it all. Right. And I, and, or to really give it the time and attention that it deserves, right. Versus this blip that we learned in a history book in second grade, right. That I didn't commit to memory, but by reading it in a story and through characters, I can really understand and exactly. put it within my mind and within um, my understanding of the world. Exactly. I think rather than reading about the history of Burma and India and Britain as a colonizer, I mean, I could read very dry, sure. but, uh, and there's some people who probably prefer that, but I just think it's so so compelling to read those narratives and the characters especially yeah you know. I think for me that's where the impact comes in right and and again there are people that enjoy nonfiction, but for me it doesn't hit me the same unless I feel like I've dove into the storyline a little bit yeah absolutely yeah and you know these are folks that are writing um having lived in these I think that idea of living in a place to and there's, with my own memoir, I went back to my hometown a lot. Yeah. And interviewed folks. And, you know, there's something about sort of the oral histories that people have, the being right on that ground. It's really, really important. Absolutely. Well, I love that. Okay. Yeah. And then what's the last book of the pairing today? The last one might be very familiar to your listeners. Um and that is Pachinko. Um, Pachinko, I read before Apple TV made uh, its series. Oh, I didn't even know it was a series. I'm not much of a TV watcher, I'll be honest. So I, I missed a lot of that, but I didn't know it was adapted into a TV series. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, on, it's on Apple TV. Um, and, but I had read this again with my friend, uh, my good reading buddy. Um, so I had read it or she read it first and recommended it. Okay. And um, I can say just at the offset that um, as I got like near like the last third of the book, I kept checking to see how many pages I had left because I didn't want it to end. Okay. <laughs> so rare. So rare that there's a book that you're like, oh no, don't end. Don't yes. end. Don't end. I mean, did you have a little bit of a book hangover when you were done? Where you're like, I don't know where to go from here because I need to process what I just read. <laughs> ah, it's process and, um, to, yeah, exactly. It's a great way a book hangover. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's, uh, it starts out in Korea. And again, this is, you know, a story of, uh, it's a family story. It's an epic. It also yeah. sweeps over about 60 years. Okay. Um, and there's a young woman in Korea who, um, she, you know, it's one of those things as a woman reading it, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, huh? So there's a, basically a, Japanese businessman a lot of folks don't realize or don't you know don't know the depth of the impact of Japanese occupation in Korea yeah. and um, he's basically kind of like a a businessman and um, he you know kind of grooms her I would say yeah. in current day parlance okay um Ultimately, he falls in love with her, but she certainly falls in love with him. Okay. And then she gets pregnant and he wants her to go back to Japan with him. Okay. He's like, yeah, no, 
I'm not going to Japan. And so she actually marries um, another man who loves her very deeply. And um, so she has another son. So she has a son by the Japanese guy and then a son by this Korean man. Okay. And um, it follows their family life and um her older son is brilliant academically he's just amazing and he decides to go to japan and he is he ends up marrying into a japanese family and yet he always feels very other and okay. um he has a lot of ambition and still feeling othered. And then the younger son is not academically or, you know, classically seen as, as um, super intelligent, but he has, he's really savvy and streetwise. And so he sure. gets into pachinko parlors and pachinko is a type, type of gambling game. Oh, okay. And, yeah. And so you know, through the story, there's um, still that that love that their mom has for this Japanese guy who, in in the end, turns out to be um, basically very involved with organized crime. Oh, and boy. so, yeah, there's just kind of a whole whole opportunity one to learn about that Japanese you know that whole relationship between Japan and Korea which they still is still such a yeah. um, visceral thing even today mm -hmm. um and and also just to you know that whole idea of the Japanese organized crime and sort of in a in our current population pop culture you know it's the the ruthlessness and violence and there is certainly ruthlessness and violence right and yeah. this man there's just there's a lot about that character that he's definitely uh a lot that he, you feel for him you feel for him trying to navigate and wanting to know his son and then his son his older son being no, you know, I can't, can't be engaged. I can't be a successful Japanese businessman if I'm going to engage with someone who's a gangster, you know, that kind of, anyway. Wow. Okay. It's just lots of worlds within that narrative. Yeah. Wow. wow. And beautifully written. Just, again, all of these are just beautifully written. Yeah. For as long as this book has been on my TBR, I, d I didn't even know what it was about. I, I'm trying to think of how it ended up on my TBR, right? Of like, you get, like you said, book recommendations, and I have a list where I keep them. And I'm like, but it's been on there a long time. And I think I've been intimidated by the length a little bit. Uh -huh. not, not that I don't read long books, but it's like, I have to have the space and the time to put them in, <laughs> into the schedule there. Yeah, I think... Uh as a writer with all of these books the the one from new zealand is not quite that long but okay. um both gosha's books and um and pachinko they're they're all fairly lengthy they are very skilled though in moving the narrative right yeah. they're not like quickly like a, a very commercial popular thriller like sure. boom, boom boom it's not that but they are really good at um just drawing you drawing the reader into the like you just definitely can't put it down kind of yeah. thing and um and that yeah lengthy books need that kind of work you yeah. know where you're you don't put it down and then come back months later or something. Yes. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like the authors do a great job of, I don't, I want to say taking care of the reader in the story. That's not what I mean, but of, um, of drawing you with them, right? They do such a good job with it. It sounds like that it's worth the read. So, and investing the time to it. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good phrase, taking care of the reader. And that doesn't necessarily mean like coddling a reader. Or yeah, not that. Yeah. To a reader or, you know, I think, but that care is also being aware of, you know, what a reader might need to, to really fully engage, I guess is, is how I would think about it. Yeah, I'm like, I can't quite pinpoint exactly what I want to say, but that, you know, it take the time, invest and do that. <laughs> yeah, particularly as a white 61-year-old middle-class woman from the United States, right? Like, yeah. I'm reading this and feeling like, you know, there's discomfort that I'm like, whoa, you know, this is like really lifting up a lot of stuff. And like also being able to tap into just those things that we all have as humans, right? Yeah. That empathy and the humanity of it is really important as a writer to like reach out with those those things. Yeah. So. And it's their experiences too. So Right. Yeah. Well, that was great. Thank you so much for sharing all of those. I I'm like, okay, adding them all to my TBR to pick them up. I appreciate that. And I hope our listeners would love to pick them up as well. Mm -hmm. um, I have one book, actually. Sometimes I'll do a dessert pairing if it's a genre that I've read. Um, and I had a book that's coming to mind as you've been talking. Have you read Salt Houses? I, I have not. Okay, it's by Hala Alyan, I believe. And she's a Palestinian American. It is a shorter, it is not as epic, but it does span, like you said, something about like 60 years. Um, and it starts out with um, the mother, her name is Salma. And in their culture, they have the coffee dregs read to predict oh, the wow. future. And so she's having the coffee dregs read on the morning of her daughter's wedding, I believe. And her daughter's name is Alia. And, oh, it's the night before the wedding, excuse me. And the prediction that she gets from the coffee drugs is not good. So she is going to hold on to the secret of this is not the future I want for my daughter, but this is something that their culture has done. And the family is living in Palestine. Shortly after the wedding, the six-day war begins in Palestine. So they are, their whole life moves to Kuwait, right, to a safer area for them. And then in, I believe, you know, like early 90s, Saddam Hussein is going to invade Kuwait. And so they're forced to leave Kuwait again. And at this point, the kids are older. So the whole family kind of scatters. And the story just spans these years of one family went to the United States. Another family um, stayed in the Middle East. I'm forgetting what country they stayed in at this moment. But um, and just, but their family trying to stay connected through the years, maintain the traditions of their culture, despite all of this resettlement they've had to go through, through all these constant conflicts in the Middle East. And it's multiple family perspectives. So there's multiple storylines going on, but it's all of the same family. But as the kids get older, it's their individual families. And it was very beautifully written. There's a lot of heartbreak into it, right? If you can imagine having to resettle your family and, and the scattering of your family, but it was very beautiful. And it, it may, I learned so much about that area of the world that I did not know in reading wow, it. Wow, that sounds so, like it's right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, I was, I don't, it kept pinging in my brain as you were talking. Cause like I said, I love to give a little thank you for coming on the show, give you a little dessert pairing of a book that you might like, but it fits in. I think there's not the colonialism per se, but there is the conquering and this these constant invasions that are happening in the Middle East. So there are some themes of that as well. So I yeah. Think you, well, like, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, you're very welcome. Well, what I like to do to finish the show is what I call bonus pairings, and they're just a speed round of questions, so you can answer these really quick. So first one: Where is your favorite place to read? I think it's my bed. Love it. <laughs> a great place to unwind. <laughs> yes, to unwind and just kind of take myself away. And 
But again, peanut butter and jelly at lunch <laughs> and reading, that, that's also a thing for me. So I don't know. Bed okay. <laughs> All right. I love that. And then what is one book that you have read that has changed your life? You know, I, that was such a good question. Um, and I had to like really, of course, uh, you know, I'm sure every author says when you ask this question um, that there's so many. Yep. Um, and, it, and it depends on where you are in your life. But one yeah. that I will mention, which is so funny because I don't know if I would pick it up now, but when I was in my 20s, I read um, The Mists of Avalon. Okay. It's by Marion Zimmer Bradley. Okay. And um, The Mists of Avalon is essentially a retelling of the Arthurian tale um, through uh, the eyes of the women, especially. Morgane, who in most Arthurian, like classic telling, she's a horrible person. But she, uh, in this telling, she really represents or is part of um, the original Druid community in Britain. And so she has, and so it's all, it's for me at the time in my 20s, you know, coming into my own as a young woman and um, it, there was so much about the book that was, you know, just even that audacity of like taking such a classic male centric, also Christian centric story and then kind of turning it on its head like what if it was told through the you know through the perspective of these women from this earth-based spirituality perspective and for me it was i can remember just reading and reading and feeling like i was walking around with this whole new sense of me and I I don't know. Like, I I just loved it. I can tell you that I am not a fan of most of her other work. (laughs) But But this one hit (laughs) you. That one hit me. And that was my 20s. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Are you a rereader? You know, that that's a really good question. I um, I have lots of books in my house, of course, um, and particularly in my space where I write um, and do my work. And I often will pull books out, remembering something that I really want. I want to read it again to kind of for craft purposes or um, I'm not a big rereader, mostly because there's just so many books, new books. I feel you on that one. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And then lastly, what are you reading next? Well, right now I'm reading a wonderful book by a poet, a black poet, um, Camille Dungy. um, And it's a memoir called Soil. And it's called Soil with a subtitle of a black mama's garden. And she is, it's very interwoven. Um, She, she's telling the story of moving to Fort Collins, Colorado, and um, deciding that she and her husband decide that they're going to not do the classic lawn and the picket fence, but (laughs) that they're actually going to have this garden that is native that, you know, is like, so she but she wraps it's a memoir so it's not just that story but then she's you know bringing in lots of experience from throughout her life and her um she tells the story of a a black woman in lynchburg virginia during jim crow years who was who developed this garden and it's now a museum now i want to drive to lynchburg virginia (laughs) um 
um, you know, outdoor garden museum. So yeah. I'm loving it. Yeah, it's really, really yet another beautifully written book. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds very intriguing. Yeah, I would enjoy that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I know your time is precious. So I appreciate all you have given me. Well, thank you, Kara. It was really fun just getting ready um, to be thinking about books. It's kind of like uh, thinking back through memories of family or yeah. something like that. And so that was really fun. And um, so I really appreciate you for yes. creating the podcast. Oh, well, you're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation today with Janet Hurley. Her book flight today includes historical novels written by native writers and the impact of colonialism. We'd love to hear what other books you might pair with this book flight at bookishflights.com. That is also where you can find more information on today's flight and any other books that we talked about today. I want to inspire a community of readers So whenever you share a post about what you are reading or what you are picking up next, especially if you have heard about the book on the show, please tag us. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Bookish Flights. This is a brand new show. So if you enjoyed it, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a review. Your review not only helps me, but it also helps the show reach others. Make sure you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to make sure that you will not miss an episode. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. As Emma Thompson said, I think books are like people in the sense that they'll turn up in your life when you most need them. Cheers to you, dear readers. Until next time.